внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. All is not quiet on the Ukrainian front. President Volodymyr Zelensky used his speech last week at the UN General Assembly to call on world leaders to quote wake up and to chastise them for not doing enough to oppose Russian aggression against his country. And Zelensky kind of has a point. Moscow stepped up efforts to give Russian passports to Ukrainians living in separatist controlled territory in eastern Ukraine and even allowed passport holders to vote in recent Russian parliamentary elections. Russia also reportedly has plans to spend $112 billion in unoccupied separatist enclaves of Donetsk and Luhansk. Moscow's ally, Belarus, is moving military hardware to its border with Ukraine, including possibly Russian-made S-400 anti-aircraft missile systems, and has, without evidence, accused Ukraine of establishing military training centers with NATO to attack Belarus. It's been one month since Zelensky got his coveted White House meeting with U.S. President Joe Biden and secured additional defense assistance. But how do things look on the ground in a country that has been at war for its very existence for more than seven years? Today, we'll find out. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical Ukrainian city of Odessa, a place where I spent one of the happiest years of my life back in the early 90s, is my old friend and colleague, Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor in the Faculty of International Relations at Mishnikov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. Welcome back to the podcast, Volodya. It's great to see you again. Hello, Brian. Good to be here. It's good to have you. And Volodya, I just, I just actually checked and it's been almost exactly two years since you last appeared on the podcast during your last right. visit to Washington. That's about right. In the before times back in September of 2019, when we had no idea what was coming down our way. And I, I thought it just, it's just you and I, I thought we'd kind of just sit here like two old friends hanging out in a bar talking about Ukraine. And I thought what we do is look at several pressing issues in Ukraine, both in foreign and domestic politics. Um, and let's start with the foreign affairs. We'll move to the domestic politics in the second half below the fold. And to get the ball rolling, I mean, Zelensky's speech at the UN last week raised a lot of eyebrows. He was clearly frustrated. Um, does this reflect a general feeling among Ukrainians? And what was he trying to accomplish? And in your opinion, was he successful? You certainly got my attention. Right. Well, well, actually, there are several points to be made about that. Uh, first of all, it was even debated in Ukraine if he is going or not, should he go, go or not. Even uh, shortly before the, the trip to New York for the General Assembly, uh, he was basically planning not to go. But then there was some discussion, and then they said, okay, we should go. And I personally uh, thought that he should go, because for a country like Ukraine, which is indeed under aggression by Russia, it is always important to attract attention, to remind everyone about the ongoing aggression, and Ukraine is a target. 
uh, is a victim of it, and that's uh, it's important, you know, because other countries uh, tend to forget and focus on their own priorities and interests, and that's not right because Ukraine needs and deserves, as you said, uh, rightly so, uh, deserves some assistance. So he went and he made that speech, and uh, I think that he probably went uh, overboard a little bit in terms of aggressive rhetoric several times. Uh, that's what he does in recent months. Uh, he had an interesting evolution here, actually, Volodymyr Zelensky it is. Uh, the, for the first couple of years, two years, more or less, uh, of his presidency, he was being quite uh, silent and uh, quiet about uh, foreign policy, not making much of a noise, except for trying to uh, to follow up on his uh, promise of uh, looking for a peace uh, solution or settlement for Donbass with Moscow. That never happened. And then he quickly discovered that not might not going to happen. And then all of a sudden, in the recent several months, he has become very active uh, and, and noisy and making a lot of statements and pronouncements. And some of them are critical of the West. So that UN speech fits uh, right uh, into that uh, pattern of his behavior. Uh, I think he's done a good job in terms of actually saying, people, look, we've been uh, under attack for seven plus years now. So why don't you just uh, remember about that and and try and see what you can do to help us and maybe, you know, uh, chastise Russia to some extent. And that in that respect, he was successful. How did you interpret who his targets were in that speech? I mean, was he was he trying to get the attention of the Europeans, the Americans? I mean, it came again. I'm going to move to this in a bit shortly after his White House meeting with Biden. Um, yeah. But is, what is he trying to get? What do you right. think the goals here were? I think all of those you mentioned, but as you well know yourself, Brian, studying these uh, issues for, for a long time now, it's often uh, the case, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's also the case here, that many of the pronouncements are also intended for the domestic consumption. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, he is uh, he is caring about his ratings. Uh, he worries about them a little bit. Uh, well, he's in the middle of his first presidency term, uh, but he's trying to present himself as a, as a boisterous, you know, kind of mm -hmm. active president who is caring about national interests, who is not shy of uh, saying what he thinks, and he is uh, often criticizing uh, Western partners for not helping in, uh, Ukraine enough, and therefore UN is one of those uh, uh, targets for the for the criticism. Mm -hmm. And of course, we all know that UN deserves uh, being called uh, out for inefficient, being an inefficient structure in many ways. Uh, maybe not in a general assembly as such, but uh, Security Council, which is the main uh, body there. But it's uh, in case of Ukraine-Russia conflict, of course, it's better like Russia being there, yeah, being a permanent member, having the veto power, and so on. So the general assembly basically remains also an important field, a forum, if you like, uh, a podium for him. But it might not be able be being able to reform itself or help Ukraine any any better. So I think it's a combination of uh, some frustration with uh, that he feels himself, and also he generates some of that in, in Ukrainian populace. So it's an interesting interdependence. It's not just that he is uh, channeling some of the frustration you mentioned here by Ukrainians uh, as his as their president, but he is also shaping up those attitudes. And I'm seeing this uh, wave of criticism towards the West in the recent months, uh, primarily uh, sped up by the Nord Stream 2 agreement. And yes. I'm sure we we'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to dive into that for sure. I wanted to stick with Zelensky for a minute because the last time you were on this podcast, it was several months after Zelensky had been elected. That's right. 
Um, we were kind of evaluating, and if you remember back at that time, and I was in Kiev during that during that election season, and I remember the fears a lot of Ukrainians had about Zelensky. He is a Russian speaker you know, from the east. Uh, there were fears that he there's fears in the best case scenario that he was naive about the yeah. Russians, that he could no, negotiate some settlement in Donbas, and at the worst case scenario, there were fears that he was worse than naive, if you will, um, regard with regard to that. How do you evaluate how he's handled the war and how he's handled the Russians since coming to power? Do you think? I mean, he's he's generally surprised me in a positive way, actually. But I'm I curious how it looks to you. Right. I think it's reasonably well. He handled it reasonably well. But, I mean, uh, it's a tough uh, thing to deal with for any Ukrainian president. Uh, Russia has an upper hand in sense of, of resources and the military and the financial and so on. They can escalate when they like, uh, as you know. So in, in many ways, we are at their mercy. But at the same time, we fought back and uh, he is not given up on certain principled issues. Like with the Minsk agreement, for instance, uh, uh, Ukraine is uh, stubborn enough and persistent in saying, look, we cannot uh, go on and have those elections uh, in the territories uh, outside of our control before we actually have any meaningful security or control over the border or something like that. Uh, so it's interesting, actually, that with the last visit to Washington, uh, Minsk agreement were not mentioned even once. Uh, in none of the documents, not in a, in a, in a, in a both sides talking about the visit, they were just basically neglected, left out. Uh, and that's no, I, I think that was intentional. And actually, I give yes, Zelensky yes, a lot of credit That's interesting. Here. It's also reflecting on American thinking on the issues. Like Minsk, if, if implemented like it was written and signed by Ukraine, with a you know with a gun a barrel, to head. <laughs> barrel of the gun that Ukrainians hands, Ukraine's hat, right? Uh, is not is not going to work. Is not going to deliver, and it's not just workable. And, uh, and the other side is not delivering anything. It is not fulfilling any of their obligations. So why should Ukraine? And uh, there is a, there is this thinking in Ukraine and in Washington that uh, that's probably the case. Yeah. yeah no, I I am very appreciative of how Zelensky is effectively called BS in the Minsk agreements because I always had a I had a problem with the Minsk agreements from the start because right. it played into this fiction. It played into this fiction where Putin is an arsonist and he's pretending he's a firefighter, right? He he presents himself as a, a mediator in a conflict in which he is, yeah. a, you know, he in a conflict that he started. And I I, I very and, and if the Minsk agreements were were implemented, right. as you said, Volodya, that what we would get would be effectively pushing the occupied parts of the Donbass back into Ukraine on exactly. Russia's terms, which means a right. Trojan horse, right? It, it would resemble Bosnia-Herzegovina with Republika Srpska, and this was always the outcome I feared. And I would say now two successive Ukrainian presidents, for, for all their faults, Petro Poroshenko and, and Volodymyr Zelensky, have handled this very difficult hand that have been dealt. They've played the cards that have been dealt extremely well. It seems to me that Kiev is willing to let this conflict stay frozen. Um, it could live with that. Where Moscow doesn't want it frozen. Moscow seems to want a resolution. So you say yeah. Russia has the upper hand, but actually I think Ukraine's playing a really clever game here. I don't know if you would agree on that. Right, but by upper hand I meant that they have more resources. Yes, they have, of course. They have more to invest into it. That's what I meant. Uh, we're playing it well, but like I said again, uh, Moscow can escalate quickly and decisively, yes. as you know. So we are, we are, we are vulnerable, very much so. So like every time there is uh, uh, military uh, trainings uh, nearby, everyone is on alert, uh, as they had in the spring. They had 
this, uh, you know, yes, massive movement of troops to the Ukrainian border. border yes, and I, I imagine here the Black Sea. That's another, that's another important dimension here, the Black Sea too. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's something I also want to talk about. I also want to say it's been like a month, about a month, since Zelensky's White House visit with President Biden. Right. Um, what What was Ukraine? I mean, I have I have some ideas about what Ukraine was trying to get out of this, but I wanted to, I wanted to get your perspective. What was Ukraine hoping to get out of this visit, uh, other than the kind of reaffirmation of American support, some additional defense assistance, the javelins? Uh, you know, there, there's there's been talk here in Washington, and I know they're in Ukraine. Uh, about Ukraine at some point being granted major non-NATO ally status, MNNA status, which right. is one of the highest statuses America could, could, could give to an ally. It's the same status that we give to Japan and to Australia. Right. Uh, opens the door for all sorts of defense cooperation. Um, but but we haven't, I haven't seen any movement on this. Um, what yeah. have you been hearing, and how do, do you think Ukraine got what it wanted out of Zelensky's meeting with Biden in the White House? Right. It's a multi-layered issue, Brian, so several things perhaps. First of all, I think Zelensky was really happy to have this visit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, a, that's a main result of it, uh, that it actually took place. And uh, frankly, you know, he wanted that visit uh, early on in 2019, uh, only to encounter mm -hmm. the pressure campaign from Trump mm -hmm. at that time, which yeah. led to, of course, to the scandal and uh, impeachment hearings and impeachment uh, twice by lower right. house of right. your country. So, uh, so that also left here in Kyiv sort of uh, trauma, I think, in terms of trust with Washington, that Washington could actually play games with Ukraine's right. interests. And the uh, Zelensky team uh, was traumatized in that respect, and uh, there was a lingering effect of that. And then on the American side also, because of that scandal, Ukrainian dimension and direction of foreign policy was kind of toxic for a while. Yes. All right, and uh, the, I don't know if that explains it all, uh, the, the, the some uh, lack of activism on the part of this current administration in the first half uh, of the year, of them being in the White House, or not. Uh, it might, or it might not, you know, but could be a different uh, explanation for that. I think, personally, that Biden was really preoccupied with domestic issues, first of all. Mm -hmm. Second of all, not really doing much internationally, frankly, and not uh, hosting too many people. So Zelensky was actually one of the first to visit, yes. uh, coming from outside of U.S. So in that respect, given the circumstances, I think it was a really a success that the visit actually took place. Not to mention that it actually took place in the middle of the whole quagmire with Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, so that's so that's already. I think I think it's been a success in the, in the sense that it actually showed that we have a partnership. There is some trust. There are friends talking. Uh, the decision to reinstate the commission on strategic partnership was a good idea. Uh, the defense cooperation is good anyway, but why not have this framework uh, uh, agreement that has been signed there? And the joint statement, the, the, the very detailed document, very interesting, quite unique uh, in, our, uh, mm -hmm. in the history of our bilateral relations, because it actually stipulates and puts there as a home task a lot of things that Ukraine has to do as a homework, yep. you know, as a checklist, really. So now in Kyiv, no one can say we didn't know what is expected of us because right. it's right there and we've signed it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, no, in, in in President Biden, you know, the good, you know, the good news is you do have he probably is more knowledgeable about Ukraine than any U.S. president before him um, and Absolutely. more interested in Ukraine. I mean, he once joked that he spent more time with former President Poroshenko than he spent with his wife. Right. <laughs> so, um, so on one hand, you have that. 
But as you said, his attention hasn't been on that part of the world. I mean, presidential bandwidth is, of course, limited. Presidential time is, of course, precious. And right. there is debate going on. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of, um, because you, you, as a student of, of U.S. politics, I'm sure you're aware of the debate that's going on right here in Washington right now about the direction of U.S. foreign policy. And there are those that really want to focus on China, exclusively almost on China, and basically park the Eastern Europe problem. Basically, yeah. the idea is just to make that Eastern European, make the Russia problem be quiet, park it, and right. turn the relationship with Russia from, they know it's going to be adversarial, but predictably adversarial, rather than unpredictable and adversarial as, as, as it's been. I'm skeptical of that. I, I've, I've lost people out that I'm very skeptical. Russia's not going to give up its asymmetrical advantage, which is its right. unpredictability. But how does this look from... Ukraine, and what would you say to U.S. policymakers on this front? Um, I, I, I've heard that some of them listen to this program, um, but what would you say to U.S. policymakers about this, where you know the, the the importance of the Eastern European front? Well, a lot of people want to shift the U.S. focus to China, and that's not to say that there shouldn't be attention on China. There is a you know a a, a great power competition and a, and a rising geopolitical threat um, in the Indo-Pacific. So, how, how would, what would you say there? I agree with you absolutely. I think it would be, be a big, big mistake if you focus on China exclusively at the expense uh, of uh, everything else. Uh, the focus on China should be there, but not uh, uh, given up on anything else. Because, uh, it, among other things, if you leave, if you're U.S. and you leave certain areas, you're given space to China, which they can fill out quickly, and that's what they're doing, you know, fill in. Uh, and uh, that would be a mistake, uh, including space to Russia Central, too, yeah. including Central Eastern Europe. They're already doing that, <laughs> all right. I mean, actually, American administration has been uh, not very active on Central Eastern Europe uh, for the last two administrations, frankly. And Chinese are already trying to fill uh, the space out with yep. their their money, you know, their ideology, working with the liberal democracies and others in the region. So. If uh, you give them space, if you just focus specifically on uh, Asian Pacific uh, and Eastern Asia and China is there uh, and uh, letting go of everything else, that would be a huge mistake. And I think it's going to undermine American presence. And overall, in total, it would be undermining American position vis-a-vis position vis -vis China itself. So that's an interesting if, way to look at it. I hadn't thought of that. That's an interesting way yeah, to look at Ukraine, it. Yeah, in Ukraine, we also follow this. And I mean, as you probably remember, there was this uh, talk about the possible deal of a motor siege uh, uh, engines production uh, factory here, uh, which Chinese wanted to buy. And there was some American pressure applied for Ukraine not to go forward with the deal. And it was scrambled. And uh, Chinese were not happy, but that's how it was. And uh, indeed, uh, we are from time to time debating how we should deal with China. Right. Uh, for instance, it was a very hearty for many of our states. Uh, congratulations on the anniversary of 100th anniversary of Chinese Communist Party here, Bazelensky. And uh, there was one guy who is the head of a presidential party in the parliament uh, uh, who said, if West doesn't like us, it doesn't help us more. I would just probably rebalance to China, you know, and go we'll ask mm. uh, some protection, some patronage from China, which is to me is a completely naive and, and a dangerous kind of bluff. Uh, and uh, but yet that's what we're hearing sometimes. So other day, quite capable foreign minister of Ukraine said, again, if the West is not helping us more, we should look uh, to be like another Israel, you know, self-sustaining kind of militaristic uh, country, you know, fighting for itself without any foreign assistance, which is bizarre. If you, right. if you consider how, how much assistance America has given and continues to give to Israel, actually, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, on top of it, and I, I appreciate how you bring in that, 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 you know, kind of countering China, there is an Eastern European front to that, um, yeah. and especially given the Sino-Russian partnership that we, we see now, we'll see how long that lasts. But these th- these two threats are not exactly mutually exclusive. But there's there's something else I wanted to talk to you about. Something I've been tracking a lot lately, especially in my column for the Atlantic Council, and that is Belarus, but not Belarus right. explicitly. The kind of Belarus, uh, Russian, what I call the axis of autocrats uh, between Putin and Lukashenko. And what we are seeing at the moment is a s- very steady militarization of Belarus. And what I call almost a soft annexation of Belarus. It's not going to be this spectacular event like the annexation of Crimea or a shock and awe event like the invasion of Georgia. It's happening in plain sight very slowly like a frog boiling in water. But what we are seeing at the moment is Russia very steadily but expanding its military footprint in Belarus, something we have always feared, and I know a lot of Ukrainians feared this. And not much we can do, really. There's not much we can do about it, but but there there is something we can do about it, I think. I mean, we have had a record number of joint military exercises between Russia and Belarus this year, to the point now where the Russian and and Belarusian militaries are, they're not merged, they're not merged, but they are merging uh, in a lot of senses, the constant rotation of troops throughout this year, and this is even before Zapad, before the Zapad 2021 exercises this month, you had just constant rotations of troops, which means there is a de facto permanent Russian troop presence in Ukraine, even though they don't call it that. The constant rotation means they're always there. So that's one thing. The other thing is that the Russians and Belarusians are building three so-called joint military training facilities. Um, one of them is going to be in Nizhny Novgorod, one of them is going to be in Kaliningrad, and the third is going to be in, in, in Belarus's Hrodna region. So mm-hmm. Russia is effectively going to be building a base in western Belarus. Uh, Lukashenko had long been resisting the a, a new Russian air base in eastern Belarus. It looks like he's ready to acquiesce on this now. So we have that. And Lukashenko, who in the past tried to be a friend of Ukraine. Um, before 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 the events right. of August 2020 in Belarus, Lukashenko had tried to be a friend of Ukraine. Remember that famous video of Poroshenko and Lukashenko talking during the Minsk uh, negotiations in, in, back in 2015, where Poroshenko says to Lukashenko, Putin is playing a very dirty game. He's playing a very, very dirty game. And Lukashenko said, I understand. We all understand this. We all understand this. And this was kind of caught on video. So Lukashenko in the past had tried to be a friend of Ukraine. No more. No more. He's talking about that Ukraine is building these training centers to attack Belarus in in collusion with NATO. He's talking about moving S-400s, Russian-made S-400s, anti-aircraft missile systems to the Ukrainian border. He's talking about you know fortifying that border. So is this seen in Ukraine as a qualitative change in the security situations? Are there fears due to what's been going on in Belarus that a second front could be opened up against Ukraine? Right. It's very unfortunate, first of all, of course. And like I said, there's not much we can do here in Ukraine, that's for sure. But uh, many, maybe anyone else uh, uh, also, I mean, who can stop that uh, trend of uh, Russia basically eating slowly uh, Belarus. And uh, uh, as you said, indeed, uh, Ukraine has uh, made, um, uh, you know, uh, a very 
conscious and deliberate effort over years not to uh, break any China with Belarus and right. and keep it quiet and keep it more or less friendly and uh, in a more or less at least talking uh, kind of dialogue mm -hmm. mode. Uh, even after two Maidans that we've had here, we didn't say anything like you should have one into Belarus, right. something like that. And and uh, uh, Lukashenko himself, he said, uh, you know, he's been flip-flopping and back and forth about Ukraine, and he's uh, to the extent that he was even critical a little bit of earlier on in 2014 about Russia doing things in yes. Crimea, Donbas. But now it's on the contrary. Of course, he is yes. uh, completely dependent on Russia, like 100 percent or more. <laughs> You know, and uh, even on the Crimea, there have been signs that uh, he is going to move forward to uh, de facto recognizing uh, the part of, of, of Russia. Yes. And uh, is could there be another front? There could be, but you know what? We've been living under this threat for years now, and uh, there's long enough border with Russia directly where they can attack us. Yes. And, you know, it could be that, of course, uh, from Belarus, it's even easier to reach Kiev, for instance, yes. the capital city. That's one yes. thing. But uh, uh, it's unfortunate. We, when, when, when events in Belarus happened a year ago, Ukraine was left in a position that we couldn't take any other thing, any other position, but be critical of what Lukashenko of course. was doing. It was a major test, you know, yeah. of Ukraine as a being pro-democracy, pro-Western country that was expected of us, that was expected by most of the people here in Ukraine, that our government, our president and others would actually be very critical and not recognizing yeah. Lukashenko's so-called win. And uh, therefore, it was... A kind of a trap for Ukraine. We had to take this position, and once we took it, you know that the whole thing started. The Ukraine is, uh, you know, uh, uh, smuggling weapons and stuff like that, yes. and now working with NATO. NATO is a separate thing. I mean, that's another thing that Ukrainians, uh, President Zelensky, is not happy about any progress uh, towards uh, mem NATO membership or even, let's say, membership action plan. That's what he probably wanted to, to get something from uh, on that front from from Biden. As you probably remember, uh, some weeks prior to the visit, uh, Zelensky actually said that uh, he is, uh, Mr. Biden, when are, when are we going to be in NATO, he said. <laughs> you know, and that's yeah. again a reflection of some sentiments in the country and maybe of some uh, na naive uh, understanding of how that actually works. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I've long been an advocate of Ukraine getting MAP in eventual yes, membership, of, and so have many of us in Washington, but there's a lot of, a lot of us are worried because Ukraine, to make that ask, you don't want to make that ask until the answer is going to be yes. Exactly. You don't exactly. want to make that ask. Exactly. And David Kramer, our mutual friend David Kramer, the former right. Assistant Secretary of State, made this point on this podcast. Ukraine doesn't want to make that ask until Ukraine's pretty damn sure that the Absolutely. answer is yes. Absolutely. And the answer is not – I mean, I, I hate to say it. If it were up to me, the answer would be yes, but unfortunately it ain't up to me. And guess what? It's not up to President Biden either. Absolutely. It's up to NATO. NATO makes decisions collectively. Right. Until you get the Germans on board, you're not going to – this isn't going to happen. But Germans are, and others. Even the smaller Germans, countries Yeah, but if block. the Germans come – And Hungary can block it, you know? Yeah, Hungary can block it. And I want to talk look, about this. Look, the, the look how Greece blocked for years the Macedonia entry. Yeah. So anyone, yeah, any one country, my working theory has been if we can get the Germans on board, right. they will pull the rest then of NATO help. on board. Yeah. Um, but there are things short of NATO membership that could exactly. help Ukraine. And again, I mentioned MNNA. Uh, right, I'm going to go back to that. Right. Major non-NATO ally status. How, what's the view on that from Kiev? I mean, I, I, was, I was hoping to see that as a potential deliverable um, during the White House visit. Maybe I was premature there. How does it look from there? Right. First of all, NATO, there is a dialogue, very important dialogue, and it's ongoing. Uh, Ukraine is a part of the Atlantic integration process, even without any particular chance to join NATO anytime soon. 
not only there are annual plans that are very, uh, you know, kind of concrete and detailed, and there is, you know, in integral systemic plans, there is also now enhanced opportunities uh, mode uh, in the Ukraine working with NATO. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of we can actually get and getting from NATO and from working with NATO even without being a members. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, of course in Ukraine uh, the focus is on potential membership. And uh, like you said, we are all living in a big shadow, long shadow of uh, Bucharest 2008 mm -hmm. summit when this awkward decision was made. You know, yes. I think it was a, I think it was a big mistake, really, for NATO. You know, they would rather not say anything in that yeah. in that in that communicate there at the end, uh, than saying that Georgia and Ukraine one day will be in NATO, but just not now, and who knows when. You know, right. And that really irritated Russia and put Russia on alert, and, and they decided to torpedo this perspective by any means, and on the other hand, really, uh, you know, delayed any chance for both Ukraine and Georgia uh, to to get membership action plan. So. Uh, like you said, no one wants this embarrassment of 2008. When President Bush uh, W, you know, he said, uh, let's give map to Ukraine, and probably said no. So yeah. if that happens today, as you said, this will be no again. And Ukraine will be embarrassed, and Washington as well, and, and Moscow will be pleased and happy. So why do that? Right. Instead, it could be major non-NATO ally status, but uh, the thing is that it's not only Japan or Israel on that list, but also countries like Thailand and Morocco yep. and many others, Brazil yep. and others. Uh, not necessarily very close military allies of the U.S. Well, so no, and then it can be tailored yeah. to whatever the country, you know, it, it's something that's, that's yeah. very flexible, in it, but, it, but right. it does open the possibility it for very does. serious defense it operations. It kind of does, but at the same time, the U.S. does a lot of help to Ukraine already. And I think it's a position of U.S., and I understand it, and on other, any other issue as well. When Zelensky is saying West is not helping enough, I think Americans think we're helping enough. We're helping a lot in in various fields, in various sectors. And there is sometimes lack of understanding why Zelensky is not happy or irritated. Except maybe for this, again, Nord Stream 2, that we'll get right. to eventually, but I'm sure. But, but on any other issue, uh, I don't think there is any legitimate ground for Zelensky to be frustrated or irritated or being, or being not happy. So I think on NATO, he shouldn't really push it. He shouldn't, he shouldn't pedal this. Uh, like you said, for the reason that we're not going to end up uh, being happier if we actually get right. the vote for this. Right. Do you think he should push harder on MNNA status? Not necessarily. There is a debate here in this country to the extent that actually our parliament uh, even uh, had a vote on this and wanted to send a letter to American Congress to facilitate the delivery of that status. And that's actually interesting in many ways because, first of all, our parliament is not very active usually on such things. Mm -hmm. And second of all, it's kind of misplaced and misaddressed because uh, it's not Congress in the U.S. that decides it's actually American administration that does. Why yes, the president. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, it's executive, and uh, and uh, some people say, like including our very capable ambassador to U.S. Makarova, mm -hmm. and others, uh, and the vice prime minister of European Atlantic Integration Stefanishina, and they said quite rightly that uh, that might be seen as a step away from this uh, priority to one day get the membership. That mm -hmm. might look like Ukraine would say, okay, fine, since we're not getting anywhere closer to the membership, let's get something like somewhere something like this. You know, so there is still huge debate here in Ukraine, and there is no consensus, neither among uh -huh. the government or political figures or experts. Uh, there is no one opinion here. And I think we should actually form an opinion on this here in Ukraine, and then come to our American allies and friends and talk to them. What do they think? First of all, is it deliverable? Is it feasible? Would America give us such a status if we ask? 
And second of all, would that actually increase the capabilities, the capacity for us to work together in the defense field? Right, and would this, would this enhance your security? Exactly. I mean, I, I suspect it would enhance your security, okay. but, but that is a discussion to have. I, I know you're dying to talk about Nord Stream 2, <laughs> so uh, let, 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 let's talk yep. a bit about yeah. Nord Stream 2. <laughs> I mean, this increasingly looks like a done deal. Um, all the major roadblocks, uh, U.S. sanctions didn't happen because, I mean, I, I disagree with this decision by the administration, although while disagreeing, I understand, what the, administra uh, I understand the administration's logic. Uh, the fears of harming our bilateral relationship with Germany are, you know, are, are, are very real. It's a very healthy fear to have. It's, it's probably one of our most important bilateral relationships. Nevertheless, I, I, I thought we could have weathered this. I thought the German-American relationship is strong enough that we could have yeah. weathered this. Um, but Nord Stream 2 looks like an increasingly done deal. The last thing I was watching for that could stop it. I was hoping and praying for a green victory in the in the German elections that, right. of course, did not happen. Right. Uh, quite the opposite. The SPD, which is the most Nord Stream 2 friendly party, got yeah. the most seats in the Bundestag. So it, it looks like a done deal. How does this look from Ukraine? How are you going to uh, what are how does this a post Nord Stream 2 world, which is going to cost Ukraine money, basically? That That's number right. one. Even despite the fact that the, the German promises to, to kind of offset this um, financially for Ukraine. Yeah, well, there's so many things to talk about. Yeah, I, I, as you said, I'm dying to talk about it only for the reason that this is a big deal here in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And also for uh, U.S.-Ukraine relations, uh, which I'm actually specialized on. And most of the time I talk about it and I write about it. And that's why I know it's very important. Uh, it looks to a lot of people here in Ukraine, definitely people around Zelensky and a lot of public as well, people are really upset, you know, like uh, how could you do that and still call yourself a friend of Ukraine if you're America, right? And uh, I'm trying to explain that there's been an impossible, difficult dilemma for Biden administration, uh, choosing between two very important uh, priorities, one helping Ukraine, another one restoring relations with uh, key European allies, Germany foremost. And others, because you, you would understand, of course, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, especially now through the prism of the Australian submarine situation uh, and how we see the European Union uh, leaders reacted to that. Yeah. Uh, what would happen if America actually put forward the sanctions against German companies? Right. That would be a terrible uh, 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 yeah. uh, uproar uh, and, and outrage uh, around Europe. With exception of some, uh, you know, very skeptical of Russia and friendly of Ukraine countries like Poland right. and Baltics and others, right, right, right. but many other countries in Europe would say, "What, what is going on? We had four years of Trump bashing Europe uh, and European Union and, and so on, and basically turning his back on uh, traditional allies of America who've been there for decades and decades, and all of a sudden Biden doing the same thing." All right. So, I mean, of course, uh, they had to decide somehow. They've actually in Washington they have dragged. Uh, their decision on and on and on and on. And there was a there was a lot. They had to decide. Yeah, they had to. Yeah, and and also not to mention, of course, uh, the uh, that that puts them uh, in difficult situation with the Congress, where also there are many critical voices there on from both parties, you know, uh, of why of how the administration is dealing with the Nord Stream two thing. Because uh, you know, one law after another, one bill after another, the Congress puts this. Uh, uh, condition there, yeah, the, the, the uh, how you put it, the cause 
uh, that uh, there should be sanctions. There should be no way for for the White House to avoid uh, putting right. sanctions forward. But of course, it's always uh, there's been uh, this uh, back and forth again between executive and legislative, mm -hmm. and this is one of those issues actually interesting. So in Ukraine, there is a lack of understanding how that works. Uh, in Ukraine, it's just bad optics. It looks like suddenly U.S. betraying us. On such an important issue, uh, you know, it's was either one, two, or some say three, four billion years a year, millions of dollars a year for Ukraine. Others say it's also a security issue because if uh, Russia does not need the pipeline here in Ukraine now, they can attack freer yes. uh, and uh, expand the area of their aggression here in Ukraine if they don't need the pipeline anymore to deliver the gas. So that's also, so, so it's not just a security in the sense of a financial and economic security, but also in the sense of actual physical hardcore security. Uh, so, I mean, that's, it's problematic. But Zelensky, of course, is not right in my opinion when he says America has to choose whose side is, is it's mm -hmm. on, U Ukraine or Russia, because I think for the seven plus years now, America has shown that it's squarely on Ukraine's side. But it's been a very difficult situation, unfortunate for the for that for the Biden administration, and uh, that's what happened. I, my advice is always for us uh, Ukrainians not to focus on this exclusively. This is not the only story uh, in in a bigger right. picture of U.S.-Ukraine relations. There are many other things that are ongoing and helpful for Ukraine, and we should be grateful, you know. And let's not just focus and uh, and just uh, you know kind of dive into that paranoia right. about Americans betraying us. That's my point of view, but there are many others. Very, right. cool, very emotional. Yeah, no, and I, I suspect, I don't know, of course, but I suspect the administration knew it was in this, you know, negotiations on this submarine deal with the Australians, which they knew was going to piss off the French, and right. they couldn't really afford to have a, a fight with the French and the Germans at the right. same time with two European allies. The other thing about Nord Stream, though, that I think really deserves more attention um, is that it is going to be a vector for Russian corruption going right. into going Absolutely. into Europe, Absolutely. and this this worries me. And remember, who is the who is the head of the the Nord Stream pipeline construction project? It's this very old friend of Vladimir Putin's, the former Stasi agent, whom Putin has been known since his days as a KGB officer in Dresden, Matthias Varnik. And this, I mean, we're not the, the thing that bothered me was that it would have been Varnik who was being sanctioned, right? And right. I'm sorry, a former Stasi agent, it does not represent all of Germany to me, right? And so I, I, I didn't like the way it was framed that way. Um, so that's another thing I'm concerned about. But you're saying that this, this whole Nord Stream thing has basically created a vibe in Ukraine that, that the United States is kind of abandoning Ukraine, or is, is that a widespread, yeah. widespread belief? It's rather widespread, it's spreading. Uh, and to the extent that I think we now should uh, ring the alarm to some extent. I wonder to what extent there's Russian disinformation kind of stoking uh, that, that too. That too, that too. But also, I mean, uh, President Zelensky, unfortunately, plays to that uh, yeah. for whatever reason. Uh, there is a stronger isolationist, uh, you know, trend here in this country, uh, which is strange because we could not afford to be... <laughs> In isolationist situation, because we're, if we are isolated and left abandoned vis-a-vis yep. -vis Russia, uh, what's there to gain for Ukraine? And that's been our worst fear actually for years. So why push ourselves? Why, why push yourself into that position? Yeah. No, I, I I agree. I mean, I wish this decision had gone a different way. I wish the administration right. had made a different. But I understand why the administration made the decision. It was this was not an easy call. Absolutely. Um, 
Last thing on foreign affairs I wanted to talk to you about, and this is something my former colleagues at the Ukrainian service at Radio, the, the excellent Ukrainian service at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, dug up these documents about how Russia plans to spend $12 billion in the occupied parts of the Donbass, the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. Um, I'm sure you saw this piece. How do you read this? Is the, did you, do you see this as, as something to be concerned about? Well, they're not planning to let it go anytime soon, that's for right. sure, uh, because they're also watching the whole discussion about uh, Minsk and the Normandy and other things, and uh, they're seeing that they're not bearing any fruits, which means that this conflict is there to stay, which right. means they have, they have some responsibility for the territory they've taken from Ukraine, de facto, right. and that's why they need to pump up some money into it, at least for the for, to keep the people there happy, to keep the right. basic order in place and things like that. Uh, so, to, in addition to what they have been uh, doing in Crimea, pumping lots of money into Crimea, right. I think uh, actually it's probably good for us here in Ukraine because Russia is spending tons of money on that. Yes. Uh, yes. You know, and sanctions are still in place, uh, which are biting to some extent, mm -hmm. also hurting some Russian economy to some extent. Uh, and uh, I don't know if that would produce some situation in the coming years that Russians would actually at some point of time say, okay, let's give up, let's give some of that. Not Crimea, perhaps, but maybe Donbass back to Ukraine. Maybe, hopefully, not necessarily, but that that might be one scenario. Yeah, no, the, 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 my takeaway from this is that Russia is kind of coming to realize that it's right. not going to get the outcome out of Minsk at once. Right. It's exactly. not going to get this. So yes. they're content to keep the, the, the conflict frozen, which actually suits Ukraine better than the alternative of them being forced back into Ukraine as a Trojan horse. So uh, it tells right. me that these conflicts are going to remain frozen for a long time. Right, right. But, Go ahead. But as you know, it's not quite frozen, you know. Mm. Unlike in South Ossetia or Abkhazia or Transnistria, it's not, it's not frozen. People were dying. Actually, we yes. have some li little flares of escalations here and there. So for, for this conflict not to be frozen, Ukraine is actually paying a big price right. in blood and resources. And also people being tired of this being an eight years of war, which is having its toll on society, you know, also on the psyche of the people, like when this war is going to end. And we thought this president is going to bring it to an end because he promised us he, that he was trying, Zelensky, and he couldn't do it, he couldn't deliver. So a lot of people were disappointed with him about that right. as well. So actually, it's not quite frozen. That's a, that's a specificity of what we have now in Donbass. You know, of course, it's, it's neither... Something which where you have the front line moving quickly here or there, right? Uh, but it's also not something like we had in 2014, early exactly. 2015. Yeah, yeah. So it's not it's not necessarily. So that important. is that that's good that you raise it because this is something we should never forget here in the states or in Europe or elsewhere. Is that that, that this this war is going on and and, and people, yeah. Ukrainians are dying every day. You can call it in low scale. You can call it low intensity or something, but it's going on. Yes. I mean, I also do think, and I've said this before, the Ukrainians should take a lot of pride also in the fact that you basically fought Russia to a draw uh, right. in eastern Ukraine. And who would – I certainly would have, wouldn't have predicted that um, when this when this conflict started. So, I mean, the Ukrainian armed forces deserve a lot of credit. They, they surprised a lot of us, myself. Uh, I was among those who were surprised by this. Um, so that's, that, that, that's something we shouldn't forget. And that's a good segue into the second half. I do want to spend a little time about – 
about domestic politics. Um, in a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at some of the developments in domestic politics, which in Ukraine are never irrelevant to foreign affairs. The two are inexorably linked. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Wrinkle Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the magical Ukrainian city of Odessa is my old friend and colleague, Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor in the faculty of international relations at Mishnikov National University in Odessa and director of its Center for International Studies. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, and tune in. If you do and if you like us, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. So the Verkhovna Rada, the Ukrainian parliament, uh, just approved the second and final reading of a bill severely limiting the power of Ukraine's so-called oligarchs. That legislation was passed on September 23rd, and it awaits the signature of President Zelensky. The legislation would introduce a legal definition of an oligarch, create a register of tycoons, and impose limitations on their activities, including blocking them from financing political parties. I like this, I like this already, Floating. This, this, mm-hmm. this looks like a great law on, on the service. Zelensky's team has suggested that anger about the law may have been behind an attempt to assassinate Sergei Sh- uh, Sharif, a top aide and close friend of the president, uh, a day before this past um Volodya, I've often said that for Ukraine, the battle against corruption and the battle in the battle against Russian aggression are basically one in the same because corruption and oligarchic structures are one of the Kremlin's main vectors of influencing Ukraine. Right. Um, this is the other front right. in Ukrainians in Ukraine's war. You have the kinetic war that's going on as we speak in eastern Ukraine, but you have this non-kinetic war that's going on. This war about cor- corruption is Russian influence. Corruption is the new communism, as I as I as I like to say, um, to kind of get people's attention. So it, it, it's another front in this this uh, this struggle to maintain independence and sovereignty. Does this bill move the bill, the ball forward, or is this just window dressing, in your opinion? First of all, I completely agree with you about the connection, about the nexus here. Uh, it's uh, exactly the wording I often use when I talk about it to anyone. It's a, it's a, it's a front line. There is one without quotation marks and there is one quotation marks within Ukraine and on reforms and transformation and fight against corruption and things like that. Uh, and that's typical of the Western, say, American understanding of uh, the connection between the two. And not necessarily here in Ukraine. A lot of people disagree. A lot of people say, why is the West focusing on reforms and corruption at all when we are in this fight for our lives? Uh, why not focus at the fighting the war against Russia first and then deal with corruption and reforms later? I don't think it's possible. Mm-hmm. I think we should do it in parallel at the same time. That's what should be done. And uh, when you are not doing it, you're kind of undermining the the, the, the the positions behind the backs of those guys who are fighting the war at the front line. That's my position, too. On this particular bill, uh, you know, it looks good in the paper, on the paper, <laughs> but yeah. then again, 
in Ukraine, it's always like we have tons of good laws, but then uh, when it comes to implementation, uh, there are flaws, there are problems. Will it be implemented? You know, it's hard to uh, to realize, to imagine uh, right now uh, that the oligarchs would not be able to fund any political parties. Because frankly, ton, lots of uh, members of Ukrainian parliament have their connections uh, to particular oligarchs. Uh, the oligarchs have parties, oligarchs have money, oligarchs have uh, media resources, which is very important. And this law does nothing about media, as far as right. I understand. Right, and uh, if you do not address media, well, how can you deal with anything else? Because right. that's, that's their major megaphone, right? I mean, that's the major platform that they're using, uh, big channels that they have, uh, that people listen to. Uh, because, uh, after all, most Ukrainians are not into online sources or even reading newspapers, but mostly just watch TV. You know, after all, the President Zelensky was being was made president by TV TV channels, including OnePlus One and others, uh, been critical of Poroshenko, bashing Poroshenko, and that's how he become, became a president. So he, he's aware of that. And uh, not addressing this issue, it's not going to work. It's not going to cut. So we'll see. Hopefully it's a step in the right direction. But it's still, I'm afraid it still might not be the magic bullet that might actually do it. I'm, I'm curious about Zelensky's motivation for pushing this law. What, what drove him to do this? Because as we all know, Zelensky does have very right. – or had – they may be ambiguous at the moment. Right. But he had very close relations with one very specific oligarch being Ihor Kolomoisky. Right. right, who is widely seen as Zelensky's patron. Now, I know they've had kind of rocky times uh, at different points in his presidency. How does Zelensky's relationship? Where where is Zelensky's relationship with Kolomoisky at this right. point? They had a falling out, and uh, right now, not in friendly terms, to put it mildly. Uh, so Zelensky, uh, first of all, he promised uh, that he would fight the oligarchs in his election cycle, mm -hmm. and a lot of Ukrainians expect him to do that. Uh, basically, several major promises he made. One about the war with Russia, another one the reforms and fight against corruption and oligarchs. So that, that's what he's doing. Another thing he has also promised de oligarchization uh, to our friends in the West. Uh, he has to deliver to here too. And also, he wants to be a stronger president, and the oligarchs make it hard for him to achieve mm -hmm. that. Uh, if they're pulling the strings and uh, he is uh, appearing as a fool, not controlling the situation, he is embarrassed and he's vulnerable and he doesn't want to be in that position. So basically, just the reason for political survival, he wants to be stronger at their expense mm -hmm. uh, and he's fighting them. And, uh, you know, like some uh, some more than others, uh, like, for instance, Medvedchuk has been squeezed and pressed in recent mm -hmm. months. Yes. And he's a mainstay guy in Ukrainian politics. He's been around for a long time, very influential. And he's not just an oligarch, but he's, I mean, he's a Russian right. agent, let's face he's, it. <laughs> yeah, very close to Putin, obviously. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, son-in-law, son something like that. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah. And I think uh, on on, on uh, fighting against oligarchs, uh, here actually Washington really uh, pushing Zelensky to do that. So here the, 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 the agendas, uh, con con converge here with, between Washington and Kiev. Uh, with uh, Kolomoisky, for instance, he is under a lot of pressure by U.S. as well. Yes, on, yes, he is. Of course, he is early, was early, early on sanctions when, the, when 2014 started, but also behind the current uh, recent stage of uh, squeezing uh, Medvedchuk by Zelensky, I think there has been also a lot of uh, Washington prodding right, right. to do that. And surprisingly enough, when uh, that included 
uh, taking a lot of uh, channels, TV channels owned by Medvedchuk, frankly, yes. or people close to Medvedchuk off air, that didn't meet any criticism from, from our friends in the West, unlike it was in the previous years. But right. this time they understood what, what, what it means, yeah. you know, when this Russian propaganda has been su suggested now to Ukrainians, but by presumably, you know, Ukrainian channels, which are not really Ukrainian channels. Right, exactly. And this does show us that there, that all oligarchs are not created equally, right? There is kind of a spectrum. You have yeah. the openly pro-Russian oligarchs like Medvedchuk and yes. Firtash. Then you have the Donbass oligarchs who are trying to play their, you know, play yes. both sides. People like Renat Akhmetov. And then you have the, you know, the, the nominally pro-Ukrainian or patriotic oligarchs like, or so-called patriotic oligarchs like Kolomoisky, um, who, are, who, are, who are ostensibly loyal to Keith. But all of, it, all of this taken together, though, we're basically in Ukraine, what I see as Ukraine's fourth post-Soviet revolution. Um, I don't know if you've heard my spiel about Ukraine's post-Soviet revolutions. I consider 1994 a revolution because there was a free and fair election. The incumbent lost, stepped down, and power was peacefully transferred to his successor when Kravchuk lost and Kuchma won. I was in key for that. I thought that was really, really important. The second revolution was, of course, the Orange Revolution. Um, in that sense, this was as much a, a civil society affair as much as an oligarchic affair. I mean, I thought the civil society reaction on the Maidan was very real, but you also had an attempt at that time of the Donbass oligarchs, namely mostly Akhmetov, to basically seize power for themselves. And the other oligarchs said, uh-uh-uh, we have oligarchic pluralism in Ukraine. And so Petro Poroshenko and Kolomoisky were, were funding the other side in a lot of ways. And then, of course, the revolution of dignity in Ukrainian civil society saying, we want to move beyond oligarchic pluralism to have real pluralism. And this is the battle. This fourth revolution is the carrying that out. And it's proven really, really difficult because the oligarchs have to agree to kind of go extinct. And they're not going to do that. And so I, I see this legislation as important in the sense that this is Zelensky trying to force this. And maybe it's a baby step, but at least it's a step. Right. right? It's, Poroshenko never did anything like this. Right. There's a long way ahead of us uh, in that direction. I mean, it's uh, the system is very resilient. The old uh, regime, the ancien regime, is very is there. They're fighting, uh, you know, tooth and nail, you know, and uh, they're not going to give up any ground. Uh, the the ideal situation for a long time for us was when we had when we had an equilibrium of oligarchs, and yes. they were kind of balancing each other, yes. <laughs> which uh, allowed uh, someone who's in top of the executive branch to actually move country forward in domestic and foreign policy, but. Right. Uh, at least uh, there was no oligarch who would be taking, you know, that who would be dominating, who would be hegemonic figure here. Well, that's the case uh, right but, now. Uh, but ideally, in the future, of course, we should get rid of them. But it's a long, long way ahead. Right. No. But but I, I mean, I think we agree this law is a step, maybe a baby step, but a step in the Absolutely. right direction. Yes. yes. One. The last thing before we wrap it up, I want to talk about because we're about halfway through uh, Zelensky's term, right? Um, it's a little more than halfway. Um, and Ukrainian voters are not kind to incumbents, <laughs> to put it, put it mildly. This is one of the examples I always use of Ukraine's democratic development, is that elections really matter. Being an incumbent is no guarantee you're going to win re-election. In fact, you're probably not. Only one incumbent in Ukraine's post-Soviet history, Leonid Kuchma, ever won re-election. Um, every other incumbent was defeated. Um, and Zelensky's, you know, past the midterm mark. 
Um, how do you see the political field in Ukraine mm. right now? How do you see the balance of forces in the political field right now? Do you see the opposition bloc and the pro-Russian parties gaining any ground? I, I, I don't, but I'd be curious. You're closer to this than I am. And if not, wh who is ascendant? How do we see this? What parties and what, what possible figures are ascendant at the moment? That's interesting because uh, uh, in, the, in the first stage of his presidency, Zelensky was kind of losing his support for a while. Uh, and the ratings were going down, and they were kind of alarmed. But then they've probably reinvented themselves a little bit, uh, perhaps including uh, at the expense, unfortunately, of uh, bashing our friends in the West of not doing enough to help Ukraine, which some, somehow resonated with a lot of Ukrainians, apparently. Uh, but also other things, and uh, also he definitely, Zelensky, benefits from, from the same figures in the field. Uh, that Ukrainians are being charred <laughs> and sick right. of, uh, because it's still Poroshenko, still Timoshenko, you know, so it's not right. new, you know, Zelensky can only lose to the new Zelensky, the Zelensky right. 2, 2.0, you know, <laughs> uh, who will be a fresh, a new face, attractive somehow, being out of the system, you know, not connecting to oligarchs, how Zelensky was, and that's mm -hmm. what he wants, so, so decisively. If someone like this appears on the horizon, uh, he would have a trouble, I think. But if, if it's only established and well-known political figures in their parties, uh, he can actually win, I think, easily in two and a half years from now. So that's, uh, that's, that's my take on what is going on right now. But there might be some upsets and shifts as we go forward. Uh, Svetoslav Vakarchuk, do you see him? I mean, there was a lot of talk of a potential candidacy by him back in 2018, 2019. Never yeah. happened. He, th there was, but then uh, he discredited himself even with uh, his uh, parliamentary party, the voice, the goal. Uh. Discredited in the way that there were some expectations of them, and then he even gave up on it. And he, I think he basically left the politics. But there might be someone like him, yes, with mm. a big following uh, around the country, someone who could be non-political. Uh, like Zelensky was, you know, really coming out of this outside of the spectrum. So it sounds to me you think Zelensky kind of might break this curse of the incumbents in Ukraine and, 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 yeah. and be something different. That's that, that that's interesting. I mean, we we won't we won't know for 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 for, for a couple well, of Kuch, more years. Kuchma was there for two terms too. Yeah. Kuchma was the only one. Kuchma was the yeah. only one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who survived? Who survived two terms? All right. All right. Well, we're pushing up against the end here, Volodya. God, it's great to see you. That's all we have time for today, unfortunately. So we'll have to wrap it up. I know it's late there in Odessa. Um, I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies, in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic. Council's Eurasia Center, and joining me from the absolutely magical Ukrainian city of Odessa, where I spent one of the happiest years of my life back in the early 90s, has been my old friend and colleague, Volodymyr Dubovik, an associate professor at the Faculty of International Relations at Mechnikov National University in Odessa, and director of its Center for International Studies. Volodya, thanks for an enlightening discussion. Thank you so much, Brian, as always. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, great to see you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance yes, Vegas is in the virtual control room. 
He keeps all the lights on at all the complicated machines, well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up all my messes and making us sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, and if you like us, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating and review as it helps our visibility a lot. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.